The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 28, a Psalm of David. To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you, when I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not take me away with the wicked and with the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors, but evil is in their hearts. Give them according to their deeds and according to their wickedness, the wickedness of their endeavors. Give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the hand operation of his hands. He shall destroy them and not build them up. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplications. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving refuge of his anointed. Save your people, and bless your inheritance. Shepherd them also, and bear them up forever. We have, for a sermon today, Exodus 33, verses 1 through 11. It's entitled, Everyone Who Sought the Lord. All right, so Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. Then it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses and all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Now, before I start my words of the sermon today, I uh, just in case somebody on YouTube did not hear this earlier or, uh, you know, during the prophecy update, I just want to thank them, every person that's been a part of this ministry. We closed out our financial year uh, this yesterday. The 1st of October is the beginning of a new uh, uh, financial year for the church. And 
I, I am humbled and I am grateful for how giving people have been to this ministry. Um, if you see online, you know we have about normally 20 people in the church. And uh, I think the highest we've ever had is 28. And so it's not a big church. And yet every need has been met. And it's been by the people here and by the gracious people that have been online members of this church. And my heart is overflowing. And I want to thank each of you. So please know that, that uh, I, I am very grateful. Um, as far as our sermon today, I want you to know that it's a little bit difficult. It's not real complicated, but there are some things that uh, need to be explained. And I'm going to explain one of them right now, and then when you hear it, it'll make more sense. We have a passage um, which is being inserted into a place earlier in the timeline. And what that means is when we had, and I'm going to say exactly this during the sermon, but I want you to understand now so that you don't get confused what's he talking about. Genesis chapter 1 uh, explains the creation of all things. And then Genesis chapter 2 is an insert into Genesis 1, showing what happened on the sixth day when man was created. And the Bible will do this from time to time. It'll take something and it'll insert it into another portion as an expansion of what was said. That's going to happen today. So when you hear me say that, it's actually, I think, uh, Exodus 32, uh, starting between verses 33 and 34. But I'll, I'll let you know for sure when we get to there. But it is a little confusing but it all makes sense when it's laid out, you know, in front of you. It's, it's a marvelous passage. Anyway, the chiasm, which I gave to all of you, and if you don't have one, I've got copies of it here. That chiasm, which spans all of chapter 32 and through most of chapter 34, continues on in this passage. It is bringing us closer to the anchor or the middle verse, which will come up in just one more sermon. Until then, the structure of the chiasm appears to reveal to us the proper placement of the verses, which we're going to look at today. However, the verses today aren't just a set of verses that need to be properly aligned chronologically into the ongoing narrative. They are also verses which show us a snapshot of Israel at several points throughout their history. The people disobey the Lord. The Lord distances himself from them, but he also makes himself available to them, at least individually even if collectively they are out of his favor. Today's verses show a separation between the Lord and Israel. Today's world shows the same. They are still under the promises of one covenant while out of the favor of another one. As long as people can understand this, then it makes sense as to why they have remained a people despite their immense disobedience towards him and even their outright rejection of him. If he were to completely reject them, then his promises to their fathers would be voided. This will never happen. An oath of God will never, never fail. When we see Christians being killed around the world, and especially for those Christians who are facing persecution, it might seem that God's promises have failed for us. That is, if we look at this world as our promised inheritance. Way too many Christians seem to look at it in this regard. But there are no enduring promises that we will not face a lifetime full of pain, trouble, persecution, or misery. This is why the Bible notes that we live by faith and not by sight. If this world were our true reward, then we might have reason to feel that way. But it is not. We have a true inheritance which can never be taken away from us. God has spoken this, and it is true. When we get feeling like we may have been forgotten, all we really need to do is look at Israel. They have actively rejected the Lord, and yet he has remained faithful to them because of his former promises. 
We have called on Christ, and his word says that because of that, we have an eternal inheritance. Just as he has been faithful to unfaithful Israel, he will surely demonstrate the same faithfulness to us because of the sure promises which are found in Jesus Christ. Our text verse today comes from Ephesians chapter 1. In him, meaning Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, meaning the Gentiles, trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, once again, speaking of Christ, also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee. Does everybody know what the word guarantee means? Because if you don't, a lot of Christians don't seem to understand that. It means it's a guarantee. It means it's sure. It is not going to be violated. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. These are the verses that I send to people time and again when they are filled with bad doctrine concerning the inheritance. There is an entire camp of people out there who look at the salvation which we have been granted to us as a conditional thing, something that we can lose. However, if there is something that we can do or not do in order to lose our salvation, then it is not of grace at all, and it never was. Whether leading up to our salvation or following along after it, If there is something that is required by us, then it is not of grace, but of works. Further, if we trusted in Christ, believed the word of truth, which is the gospel of our salvation, and then were sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, then what has happened must be eternal. If it was not, then that was one, a rather crummy guarantee, and two, God has made a mistake by sealing you. Such things call into question the workings of God. Let us never presume to do that, even internally as we struggle and doubt our salvation. Today's passage continues to show us that the Lord was still there for Israel. He may have distanced himself from them, but he has not left them nor forsaken them. Neither will he do this to you. These are truths which are found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is a stiff-necked people. It's verses one through three. Verse one, then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here. John Lang says this. He says, this is one of the most mysterious chapters in all three books of the covenant. And he is right. It is extremely hard to follow what is going on and where the words belong in the narrative. However, it is not impossible to determine I actually had to get through quite a few sermons in order to come to the conclusion that I came to. So it's not something you're going to figure out today except by saying, I'm going to trust Charlie at this point and then afterward verify, okay? The words of chapter 33 and part of 34 are an expansion of what was said when Moses went back up the mountain after the narrative of the golden calf. This is similar, for example, to Genesis chapter 2 being an insert into the sixth day record of Genesis 1. After the debacle of the golden calf, Moses ascended the mountain again where we read this. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, 
blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever is sent against me, I will blot him out of my book. Verse 34, now therefore go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. The details which we are seeing in chapter 33 through verse 9 of chapter 34 chronologically belong between verses 33 and 34 of chapter 32. The Lord said to Moses that he would blot out of his book the one who sinned against him. This account follows, and then the promise of the final verses of the chapter next are given. Confusing, yes, but it appears logical and orderly when it's laid out. For now, Moses is told to depart and go up from here with the abrupt words, lek ale mitze. What appears to be the case is that everything promised to Moses on Mount Sinai, which encompasses all of the details of the construction of the tabernacle and everything associated with it was suspended. Moses was given all of those instructions with the anticipation that it would be built and that the Lord would dwell in their midst as they traveled. However, now they're being directed to simply go up from their place of encampment. This is based on a completely different covenant made at a completely different time, meaning at the time of Abraham. As for the covenant which was just made since their arrival at Sinai, that was to be disregarded. It was voided by the golden calf. Verse 1 continues, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. The words again reflect the sentiment that they are not the covenant people. The Lord says, as he did in verse 32-7, that they are the people Moses brought out of the land of Egypt. The Lord has distanced himself from the people due to their disgraceful conduct. Verse 1 continues, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. Regardless of the status of the covenant between the Lord and the people, the issue of the inheritance of the land does not change. It was firmly resolved while Moses was on Mount Sinai with the Lord the previous time. When the matter of the covenant violation arose, the following exchange came about between the two. This is from Exodus 32, verses 9 through 14. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation." Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Now stress this. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all of this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. The people, despite their rebellion, would be the particular line of descendants who would receive the promises to their fathers before them. Verse 2, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. This is the same general promise as in Exodus 23, verse 23, which said this, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. This same promise concerning these inhabitants will be repeated again in Exodus 34, 11. All three are under the same context. However, the order of the names varies in all three. 
the Canaanite group moves within each verse. But the other four, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites stay in the same order. And I put that on the board so you can look at that and see that the Canaanites moves within those three, but they're all under the same context. No idea why, though. And that's why I'm telling you this is because maybe somebody will understand that and tell me because this kind of stuff bothers me. The Lord has a reason. And there's probably an acrostic or something in those verses which is revealing something, but I could not figure it out. And I asked Sergio, and either he didn't get back to me or he couldn't figure it out. But if you find out why that's that way, you get a bonus point from me, okay? (laughs) Also, the Hebrew does not say my angel in this verse that we're looking at. Instead, it simply says angel. The word my is inserted by the translators. This then leaves in doubt who is going to lead them. Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the fourth of 20 times that this expression will be used in the Bible. The last time will be in Ezekiel chapter 20, where it will also be called the glory of all lands. A land flowing with milk and honey implies richness and fertility. Milk comes from cows, and so it means that there will be abundant pasture lands. Honey comes from bees, which pollinate flowers, and so it implies all sorts of fruit trees and herbs and flowers. Further, the term a land flowing with milk and honey has a spiritual connotation. It isn't just speaking of the physical abundance, but also of spiritual abundance. It is the land of God's word and the people through whom that word has come. The word of God is said to be sweeter than honey. It is also equated with milk, which nourishes. Thus, this is a reference to that as well. The land would literally flow with milk and honey for sustaining Israel's physical lives. It would also flow with milk and honey for sustaining their spiritual lives. At this time, they don't know this. And with the covenant broken, only the first can be assumed. Only in looking back after the fact can we see that both the physical and spiritual aspects of this verse have come about in Israel. For now, the words are certainly given to shame the people for their ingratitude toward the already abundant provision of the Lord. He's given them manna. He's given them water from the rock. He has given them meat. He's protected them and made a covenant with them. And despite all of this and so much more, they rejected him. And yet he directs them to go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, which was set apart for them. Verse three going on, for I will not go up in your midst. The verse doesn't say that the Lord will not go up with them. It says that he will not go be-kirbecha, or in the middle of you. The word kerev gives the idea of the inward part. The fact that he just said, I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite shows that he intended to go ahead of them, just not among them. And there is a reason why he intends to not go in their midst which is the continuation of verse 3, lest I consume you on the way. Elsewhere, the Lord is called a consuming fire. That which he does not purify with his presence is burnt up in it. The Lord says that he would not go up in their midst because if he did, it would be a catastrophe for them. And this reason is expressly given in the finishing of verse 3, which says, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is now the second time that the term stiff-necked is to be used in the Bible. It is a metaphor, which is normally explained as being obstinate, but it is more than that. It defines a perverse people who want to behave in a way which is both unacceptable and unreasonable, even in spite of the consequences which they know they will face. You want a home, a place where you can stay? Go up there and make it ready on your own. 
I shall not be with you lest I consume you on the way. Do not weep to me, nor to me shall you moan. You have forgotten me, and so now I have let go of you. There will be a distance between the two of us. There is nothing more that you can do unless you call upon my son, upon the Lord Jesus. You want a home, and it is waiting there for you, one that he alone has made and can endow. If you call on him, he is faithful and he is true. You can come home through him. This I do avow. Our second thought today is from Mount Horeb, which is verses four through six. Verse four, and when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. What is implied is that Moses went back down the mountain at this time. The events are still a part of the insert between verses 33 and 34 of the previous chapter, and they will continue to be so through chapter 33. Like I said, this is an insert chapter which fills in details which bring about a resulting action. It is the same as the details of Genesis chapter 2 filling in what was missing in Genesis 1 and which led to a resulting action. Having gone down to the people, he told them what the Lord had said. In his rejection of them because of the violation of the covenant and his words that he would not be in their midst, it brought about a great sense of mourning. The word is abal. It is only the second time that this word is used in the entire Bible. To get the sense of their state of mourning, we can go to the first use of the word. It was in Genesis chapter 37 when Jacob heard of the death of Joseph. Here's what it said, and he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his waist, and mourned, that same word, a ball, for his son many days. The grieving of Israel was profound over the bad news that they had been given. It is a pattern which will be seen again in their history. Only when the knowledge of their sin is highlighted do they realize the horrible plight that they're in and mourn over their actions. An account not too distant in their future will indicate the same type of mourning. The people will refuse to enter the land of Canaan when the 12 spies return with a bad report about the land. They will face the Lord's sentence concerning their punishment and the same type of mourning will be mentioned there. Verse 4 continues, and no one put on his ornaments. As a sign of their mourning, the people refrained from adorning themselves. The Hebrew reads, and no man put on his ornaments. The masculine in Hebrew includes all people. The word for ornaments is introduced into the Bible here, adi. It is from the verb ada, which means to adorn oneself. The ornaments could indicate finery or an outfit, something worn on the head, anything like that that would make them look kind of ostentatious. Wearing ornaments today is no different than back then. They bring attention to oneself. They highlight and they intensify the perception of a person. In not wearing ornaments, then, it is a sign that a person wants no such attention and is thus in a state of grief. This is seen, for example, in the book of Jonah with these words. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covering himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Verse 5, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. The tense of the words of this verse are not completely clear. Some scholars see this as a statement which followed rather than preceded the people's repentance. The dolts at Cambridge, and I brought them up many times, they're a very liberal group of people. They find another answer to this by saying these words. Listen to what they say. The people here are told to do what they have already done, which is a clear proof that two narratives 
have been combined into one. In other words, God is taken and he's let different people write his word and just it's fuddy-duddy and all mixed together. They say that multiple authors who have been combined into one narrative. Were that so, they would have made it clearer, not a less clear translation of what was going on. It is probably correct that these words follow the people's repentance. Because of this, the next clause is not a threat of destruction, but a repetition of what has already been said as an explanation as to why he would not be in the midst of them. Verse 5 continues, I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Were the Lord to come into their midst, even for a moment, he might be inclined to consume them. The word rega or moment is introduced here. It is from the verb raga, which gives the idea of suddenness. It thus indicates the wink of an eye or something instantaneous. It is used twice in an affectionate passage from Isaiah when speaking of the Lord's tenderness towards Israel. It says there, for a mere moment, that word, I have forsaken you, but with great mercies, I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, that word again, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Verse five continues, now therefore take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. If the first clause came after the repentance of the people, then the words here would naturally follow in that same vein. And so instead of these words being a command to take off their ornaments, they are a command to lay them aside altogether. The word is yarad, and it means down. Therefore, it is an admonition to leave the ornaments off entirely. In obedience to this, and in that humbled state, the Lord would decide what he would do with the people. This is likely from the next verse, verse 6. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. The words here say that they stripped off their ornaments from Mount Horeb, not by Mount Horeb. That's a translator, and it actually says from. John Lang says that this means on account of Horeb. In other words, they did something bad at Horeb. On account of that, they're stripping off their ornaments. But even more fully than that is that the people stripped off their ornaments from that time on. Because of what occurred, they left them off entirely, and they kept them off. They remained in a perpetual state of penitence. What is most interesting is that the term Horeb has not been used since Exodus 17, verse 6. Since then, the term Sinai has been used eight times. Then the term Horeb won't be used again until Deuteronomy 1, verse 2. But the term Sinai is going to be used numerous times by then. Although they are used almost synonymously because Horeb and Sinai are used to indicate the exact same place, The words are selected to be used for different reasons when they are, in fact, used. Horeb means arid or desert. Sinai means the bush of the thorn. The different names are used to show different aspects of what is going on. When Sinai is used, it is normally referring to the ongoing redemptive workings of God for his people. When Horeb is used, it indicates the total dependence of the people on the provision of the Lord, or it indicates that which has been accomplished by him already. And why do I know that? Because I love to just look at individual words and try to find out why hasn't Horeb been used. Nobody comments on this kind of stuff, and yet when you look at the meaning of the name, and it's speaking of the same place, God is showing us something. He's showing us redemptive history unfolding before our eyes with the use of just two words. Here in the desert, the people need the Lord to sustain them. 
They have fallen out of favor with him, and so Horeb is the right and proper term to use for their needy condition. From Horeb on, they have put away their ornaments in seeking the favor of the Lord. The Lord is righteous, and it is we who have strayed. He gave us laws with which to guide our ways. But we turned from them, and our hearts were swayed, and now we live out saddened, miserable days. Return to us, O Lord, heal our erring ways. Grant us again your presence in our midst, where we can lavish upon you all of our praise. Let go of your anger and loosen your terrible fist. Lord God, to you our eyes are turned, and to you our hearts shall be directed always. For closeness with you our desire has burned. It shall never be quenched, even for eternal days. Our third thought today is the tent of meeting. It's verses 7 through 11. Verse 7, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp. This verse now explains the separation of the Lord from the people. He would not dwell in their midst at this time, but rather a far distance from them in order to not consume them in his wrath. The Hebrew says ha-ohel, or the tent. The definite article is thus believed to indicate Moses' personal tent. Moses' tent was probably the finest one in the camp, and thus he moved it out from the camp in order to meet with the Lord. Verse 7 continues, far from the camp. The term far from the camp implies quite a distance. When the ark went before the people as they crossed into the land of promise in Joshua chapter 3, the distance between the people and the ark was 2,000 cubits, or about 3,000 feet. That's more than half a mile. It was quite a distance and is probably comparable to the distance Moses was from the camp itself. Verse 7 continues and called it the tabernacle of meeting. As has been typical with the King James Version and the New King James Version, they incorrectly call this the tabernacle of meeting instead of the tent of meeting. It is the same word as was used just at the beginning of this verse, ohel. It means tent. The word for tabernacle is mishkan. The King James Version gets two demerits. The New King James Version gets one demerit. Verse 7 continues, And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. The Lord was not in their midst, but he was not altogether unavailable to the people. They could venture out of the camp to meet with him if they so chose to do so. This precept here is similar to the words of Hebrews chapter 13 concerning those who would come to Christ. If the people want to meet with the Lord, they must be willing to do it on his terms. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. This separation was to be a reminder to them that they were not in favor with the Lord. In order to seek him, they had to come to him. The covenant was nullified through their actions, and thus it was up to them to come humbly out of the camp, bearing the reproach of their actions in order to seek his face once again. What is of note is that the words, everyone who sought the Lord, implies that not everyone sought the Lord. Some did, and some did not. Those who did had to go out to where the Lord would meet with Moses, or he who draws out, as his name means. It is to be remembered that these verses are an insert into the ending of chapter 32. Once the insert is finished, the narrative continued to the end of the chapter with these words. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel, and the word my is belongs there. It's not inserted by the translators. My angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit for punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. 
a time of punishment lies ahead. However, the Lord offers grace before that time comes. He is given grace by leaving their midst and not destroying them. He is given grace by allowing them to come out of the camp to him. And he is given grace by allowing restoration for those who do not seek him. Thus, we see the truth found in Romans chapter 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so in this narrative, we actually have a picture of Israel after their collective rejection of Jesus Christ. They had forsaken the Lord and he no longer dwelled in their midst, but he has still offered them the individual grace before the time of punishment comes. Speaking of the tribulation period, any who choose to do so can come outside of the camp, bearing his reproach in order to be reconciled to him. This is all giving us a picture of the dispensational model in these verses that we're looking at right now. And so you'll wonder why it's an insert between those verses. It's because God is trying to show us his love for Israel, but their rejection of him. And so his distancing from himself while still lavishing grace upon them collectively. Verse 8, so it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. This is an obvious sign of respect that is being portrayed here. The tent was not so far off that it could not be seen when Moses entered into it, but it was far enough off so that the people were reminded that the Lord was no longer in their midst. As he passed through them, they would rise. And during the intervening time until his arrival, they would stand at the door of their tent watching the amazing scene of close and personal fellowship of which they were now denied. The pathach, or door, is that place which provides access. There seems to be a hint of symbolism here. As the people watched Moses walk towards the tent of meeting, they waited and watched at their own door. It was as if they were inviting the Lord to come to them if he so chose to do so. They were apart from him, and they were estranged from him, but they still held out hope that he would make a change and come to them. Their ornaments were put aside, and their hearts were being molded for a time of restoration. Sounds like Israel and the church and God dealing with them both right now, doesn't it? And so they waited until Moses went into the tent. It was as if they had hoped that maybe he, Moses, would turn around and rejoin them in the camp. If so, Maybe the Lord would come into their midst instead of being separate from them. Again, it is as if a picture of Israel after Christ's first advent is being seen right here. They rejected the Lord, went out after other gods of gold and found that they had lost his favor. Individually, they could come out to him, but collectively, he is not there with them. For the people at Sinai, it will not be until the sanctuary is built, and that is coming, and the Lord will then again reside in their midst. And it will not be until the time that Christ comes to his people in the temple in Jerusalem that he will once again be in the midst of Israel. The words of Ecclesiastes shout out to us the repetitive patterns of history. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing is new. Each thing that comes about is already something that has occurred. God does this so that we can call the past to remembrance and be confident of what the proper course for our future shall be. Verse 9, Then it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. Only when Moses was within the tent would the pillar descend and stand at the patach or the door. 
The place of access is where the meeting between the two would take place. The divine presence descending there for the people to see was an assertion of the authority of Moses. Where they were set off from the Lord and considered unacceptable to fellowship with, Moses was given the Lord's approval and his actions retained the Lord's favor. By coming in this way and after Moses was within the door of the tent, there could be no possibility of deception. The cloud moved according to its own design and apart from any possibility of Moses having been behind its movement. Although unstated, it can be inferred that this was a regular occurrence. Instead of the cloud coming and staying after Moses' first visit, it was what occurred each time that Moses went to the tent. When the meeting was over, the cloud probably went back up to the top of Sinai. Interestingly, the term pillar, when speaking of this cloud, has not been seen since Exodus 14, verse 24, which was about 800 sermons ago. The cloud has been mentioned several times as having been atop the mountain, but the term pillar has not accompanied it since then. The amud, or pillar, comes from the word amad, or to stand. Jim, are you remembering? We met somebody, we met somebody yesterday, and his name was Amad. And so I said to him, do you know that your name means to stand? And his name actually is from the Arabic, which means to praise. And I said, well, now you can see the connection between the Arabic and the Hebrew. They're cognate languages, is that when you stand and praise the Lord, right? Anyway, so now you know why the, I knew that word when this guy came up and said, my name is Ahmad. I said, well, it means to stand. And there he's sitting over there dreaming or he's actually reading the Bible or something. So didn't mean to put you on the spot, but isn't that curious how that happens? The Lord, yeah. Anyway, from this, we get the idea that the standing cloud, the Amud, stood Ahmad at the door of the tent. Verse nine continues, and the Lord talked with Moses. Once there, it says, and talked with Moses. The words, the Lord are inserted by the translators. The standing cloud is the subject of the verb. It is directly equated with the presence of the Lord. It is how the Lord has manifested himself to Moses and in the sight of the people. A cloud is that which covers or conceals a thing. Throughout scripture, the cloud is used to signify the coming and going out of the presence of the Lord. It is this display which the Lord chose to come to Moses in the sight of the people reminding them that just as he had delivered them through the Red Sea and led them in the wilderness to Sinai, he was still there. They had forgotten him, even though his presence was in full sight atop Sinai. And now they had to see his presence from a distance as Moses talked and intimately fellowshiped with him. Verse 10, all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all of the people arose and worshiped, each man in his tent door. This verse leads us to the notion that the cloud didn't just suddenly appear as soon as Moses walked into the tent. Instead, the people stood all the time that Moses walked to the tent. Then the people would sit down and wait for the next great thing to occur, the appearing of the cloud. Once the cloud appeared, the people would rise again and worship. See the the similarity between those two words, worship and stand. It's wonderful how things happen in the world, especially when you're doing mission work down in the projects. Anyway, each person would stand at his tent door, and for the fourth time in just three verses, the pethach, or the door, is mentioned. It is as if a stress is being laid on the door of the people to show that they wished that the Lord would come into them. They worshipped him, not in groups, but individually. It was a sign that they would gladly welcome him in and have him fellowship with them as well. 
They had lost his favor, and this was their way of begging for that favor to be restored to them once again. For the time, though, that is gone. But for Moses, it continued on uninterrupted. Verse 11, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. These words are to be taken in the sense of familiarity, as they will next be described. The Lord at this time came in the pillar without discernible face or mouth. Rather, the term panim el panim, or face-to-face, means that they had open and free discussion without anything to hinder their words. In essence, the Lord has allowed Moses to speak to him personally, intimately, and even, verse 11 continues, as a man speaks to his friend. When a man speaks to his friend, titles and formalities are set aside. Instead, there is a warmth and a closeness that permeates the conversation. It is the highest note of the character of Moses and the bond between him and his Lord. It is something that very few in the Old Testament ever attained the honor of knowing, even remotely in comparison to Moses. Verse 11 finishes with these words, and he would return to the camp, but a servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. When Moses' time at the tent of meeting was done, he would make the trek back to the camp. This is expected as he would carry the messages of the Lord back, and he would also be needed in the camp for advice and direction over a host of matters. But once again, the enigmatic Joshua shows up out of the blue as he has already done a few times. He is identified in three different ways. First, he is Moses' servant. Second, he is the son of Nun. Third, he is a young man. The word for servant means to minister or to serve. He is the one who tends to the needs of Moses as a general's aide would tend to the needs of his superior. His father's name is Nun. It's introduced into the Bible here. The name comes from the verb Nun, which means to propagate or to increase. It is used only once in the entire Bible in a messianic psalm when speaking of the reign of the king. Here's what it says. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. That word nun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. And he is lastly noted as a young man. This despite the fact that it says this in Joshua 14 verse 10. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. This means that Joshua is now about 38 or 39 years old. Therefore, the term na'ar, or young man, is probably being used either in relation to Moses, who is 80 years old, actually over than 80 years old, or it is referring to his years of service to the Lord, he being a young man in the time of his duties. The name Joshua, or Yehoshua in the Hebrew, is a contraction of Yehovah and Yasha, which means salvation. Thus, his name means Yehovah is salvation. In this final verse of the day is a picture of the work of the Lord. Moses, or he who draws out, is the one who draws out from the Lord that which is for the people, and from the people that which is for the Lord. Yehoshua, or the Lord is salvation, remains outside the camp. There at the place where the Lord meets with either the people or the people's mediator. Either way, the people must come to where he is at. Isaiah 59 tells the people that, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. 
You have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversely. The sins of the people had, in fact, separated them from their God. He was there and willing to save, but the people had to come to him to be restored to him. This is the state of Israel today. Most still have not come outside the camp to him, nor have they come through his mediator, meaning Jesus, to him. Instead, they sit at their doors, worshiping from afar and not in his presence. For the people at Sinai, their time of restoration lies ahead. And for Israel collectively, the same is true. The Lord's hand is not shortened, but the people's willingness to allow the outstretched hand to heal them remains an impassable obstacle to their restoration. Today, as we close, I would ask you to remember Israel in your prayers. They will be restored, but of them who, how, and when is not known to us. Therefore, it is incumbent on us to pray for them, just as any lost souls. They need Jesus, and they need to come outside the camp to where he is in order to find him. And as I said at the beginning of the Prophecy Update, there are 8,585,000 registered Jews right now in Israel at the first of the year, and two-thirds of them are going to be killed in the near future. I believe it's the near future. I believe we're that close. So we need to pray for them. We need to pray that now, before that happens, they receive Jesus and they're raptured out of here because those who are left behind are going to be slaughtered just like the rest of the world. And that's why I'm so adamant that we need to keep Israel in prayer. The last prayer I make every single night of my life is for Israel. Please do that. Please pray for them. But the same may be true with you. Anybody here who's deceiving themselves or anybody online, maybe you're listening and you've never raised yourself up and acknowledged him and asked him to come into your life. If so, you are no closer to God than the worst heathen. But you can get that corrected by a simple acknowledgement of your state and his ability to fix that. So let me explain it to you. The Lord has a distance between us and him because we are sinners. Our sin has divided us and separated us from our God. And there's nothing that we can do about it. We can't work our way back to heaven. It is impossible. But God sent Jesus Christ into the stream of humanity, fully God and fully man, in order to make that bridge possible once again. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. The law given under Moses to the people of Israel stands in the world. And he came into that. And he had to live it perfectly. And he did. And in giving up his life in exchange for our sins under that law, our sin is nailed to his cross. And then he came back to life to prove that what he did, what the Bible says he did, is true. He gave up the life to pay for our sin debt. He was raised to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we too can have that by simply saying, I want Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I want that in my life. I want to be forgiven. And I believe that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved. And as I said at the very beginning of this sermon, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14, if thought through properly, show us that it is eternal. We may stray from him, just as Israel has strayed from him, but he has never left Israel. Individually, they can come to be saved. Collectively, they are still guarded by him, even if they're not saved, because he promised. And when he says, I give you a guarantee in the sealing of the Holy Spirit, it is a guarantee Hold fast to that, call on Jesus, and be satisfied. Even when you struggle, I did something so terrible today, God. I'm so sorry for that thought. I'm so sorry for those perverse words I spoke. I'm so sorry. You're already forgiven. But you should be sorry over those things. All of us should. We need to act in holiness, and we need to be sanctified daily, more and more. 
Our closing verse today comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 29. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who complained will learn doctrine. He's still there for Israel and it will come about. Praise God that his word is sure. Next week is uh, Exodus 33, 12 through 23. The news is great. In fact, for them, it will be the best. It's entitled, My Presence Will Go With You and I Will Give You Rest. That'll be our 93rd Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right. I got a poem for you based on these 11 verses. It's entitled, Everyone Who Sought the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here. He did command you and the people whom you have brought out of Egypt, the land to the land of which I swore to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, saying, To your descendants I will give it. So to you I am relaying. Then I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, that's right, and the Amorite and the Hittite too, and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not in your midst go up with you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. It is true. And when the people heard this bad news, there at their tents... They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, and you know this very well. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you, so could I do. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So strip themselves did the children of Israel of their ornaments by Mount Horeb, as the record does tell. Moses took his tent and pitched it. Outside the camp, far from the camp, he went and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. Yes, this is the name he called this tent. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord, so we know, went out to the Tabernacle of Meeting, which was outside the camp. There they did go. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle before they again did repose. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended him to meet and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses in fellowship. So sweet. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door as we know. And all the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. It is so. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend there in that place. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, as we know, did not depart from the tabernacle. He stayed at the tent even so. Lord God, you are still there waiting for your people to come to you. For each and every one that will, you have promised something new. No longer will we be estranged and living apart. No longer will we be far from your place. Instead, ahead will be a brand new start when we come to fellowship with you face to face. Thank you, O God, for Jesus who makes all things new. Thank you for our Lord who is ever faithful and true. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Lord God, it is the first of uh, the new year in Israel today. And uh, we're probably right there about now. It's just about sundown. And we would pray that uh, there would be a great movement of your spirit on the people of Israel in the year ahead. And that Jesus would be proclaimed, Yeshua, 
the God of all creation who came in and united with human flesh among the people of Israel and whom they rejected. We would pray that that would be turned around today. And I pray specifically for those people who are so violently against him that we've brought up in our prophecy updates that maybe this year they would become great Pauls of the faith and would be willing to say, I now know what I once fought against and that many people would come to say, I believe in Jesus as well, Yeshua. Lord, we pray for this, that they would be saved by the bucketful before the rapture because that time is coming when there won't be any hope for most of them. Lord God, be with your people, turn their hearts to you, and also the people in this church and that are listening online. I would pray that they would each have a blessed new year based on the, uh, the calendar that we're looking at right now and that throughout the year ahead, we would take every feast day and we would look in anticipation of your coming and every moment, in fact, every moment that we would be in anticipation of your coming. But our heart certainly says that we would like it to be today. Let that trumpet blow and take us all away. That would be wonderful, Lord. But your will be done. And we pray for those who aren't here today, Darlene and Arlena and Craig and uh, any others that are out there struggling with their physical or emotional or financial troubles, that they would be eased and comforted and that your hand would be on them. And thank you for blessing this ministry. Thank you so much for what you have done, how you have made it into something, using somebody so fallible as me and the people here that are so generous and that are willing to give of their time and their selves to make a church that will get the word out to the people of the world. Thank you for that. Oh, God, you are so good to us. How wonderful and marvelous you are. We praise you endlessly, and we do so in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. All right, we get the instructions for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. There 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we read these words. For I received that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have blessed us. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam, borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to him, um, unworthy manner, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Put you right on the spot there, didn't I? I'm used to it. <laughs> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you feeling? All right. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Sure is good to have Thor here today. Thank you for coming. He always works on Sunday. He's always got something going on, and so it's very nice to fellowship with you. And Lord, we thank you for every blessing you've given us, how good you are to us, how wonderful it is to be in your presence. It's beyond words to know you, Lord God. We just want to praise you and do so endlessly, and we'll do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.